Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There are few people who know the native radio business better than Peggy Berryhill. For 50 years, she's been a clear voice over the airwaves, expanding the public's understanding and awareness of native people and issues. She enjoys a distinguished career producing live radio shows, in-depth documentaries, and valuable media education. And she continues that mission in Northern California on radio station KGUA. Today in this special Encore show, we'll hear from Peggy Berryhill about her life and radio, right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. A young Alaska Native man joined TikTok in 2020, making videos of his everyday life living in a rural village just for fun. He recently caught up with KMBA to talk about his humor and representing his Native community. Martin Paul Yupik from Kipnuk, Alaska is a well-known TikToker. At just 19 years old, he has over 140,000 followers and growing. A majority of his videos are funny Native humor skits, but he also shares what it's like living in a rural village, including his Yupik culture and dancing. Paul says he never imagined his videos would go viral. I started just wanting to share the Yupik culture, the native culture on my platform. You know, we got to share our culture to keep it alive. And I think it's really important. And um, my account just started growing and growing because people kind of found that kind of thing interesting. Martin shares videos of riding on snow machines and four wheelers, the only form of transportation in his village, as well as videos of him going out in negative 20 degree weather to get ice. In most of rural Alaska, there is no running water still. So uh, what do we do? We get ice. There's other ways to get water, but uh, at the place I am in right now, Kipnuk, Alaska, we get water from ice. As for Paul's funny native humor skits, he says he gets his ideas from various places. A lot of the skits I do are kind of like memories that I've had in the past or like experiences that I've had or I'd hear a story from my parents or my grandparents and I'd kind of like act it out in a way and just say whatever's on my mind and you know the native humor would just kind of come out. Like this skit about being a native weatherman. <clears throat> native weather report. Super windy. The wind is winding, probably about 30 knots with a wind chill of 20. <laughs> and it's slippery, so, you know, you got to be careful because, you know, you might just end up slipping into my arms. <laughs> Paul finds a balance on his channel sharing funny and informative content, but he says that because of his elders, he wants to make sure sharing his culture goes above all else. The elders would always tell me to, like, keep the culture alive because, like, I grew up, you pick dancing, and... Um, I was always encouraged by my elders to like always keep the songs alive because they go way back and it's just it's just so important to keep it alive, <laughs> basically. He says the best thing to come out of his channel is when people from all over the world reach out to say what his videos have done for them. Quite a bit of people that have told me that, hey, your videos make me happy when I'm sad. They'd say like, oh, the song you posted was so relatable to me. There was a few people that nearly made me cry. They're like, your song saved me or like your videos. I don't know. It's just... Just hearing that, it meant so much to me. Paul is taking a break from college to be with family and spend time in his hometown and continues to share his culture, humor, and life.
complete with the pen President Biden used to sign the RESPECT Act. South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds recently presented a framed copy of the law to Aglala Sioux President Frank Starr comes out. Rounds sponsored the act. It repealed 11 laws that, while not enforced, directly discriminated against Native peoples in American legal code. Among other issues, these laws gave the federal government the right to ignore treaties, take Native children from families for placement in boarding schools, and economically disadvantage Native communities considered hostile. Round said the bill represents a four-year effort. It is symbolic, but I think it sends a message that it's time to turn the table between the federal government and the tribes and to show the respect that sometimes has not been shown in the past. It would not have happened if it wasn't for your work and the work of a number of other tribes around the United States. Star Comes Out is also a representative of the Great Plains Tribal Chairman's Association. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education Sovereignty. It begins with us. Early bird registration ends July 18th at NIEA.org. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at AARP.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. If you're in Pomo Territory in Mendocino County, you might have enjoyed hearing the show Peggy's Place just now on KGUA Radio. We're devoting the next hour to the show's host, Peggy Berryhill. She's marking her 50th year in the radio business and is known as the First Lady of Native Radio. She's been a pioneer and a guiding force in the industry since first signing on in 1973 on Berkeley radio station KPFA. She is credited as the only Native person to have worked as a full-time producer at NPR. She's also had a front-row seat for the progress of Native media and representation during that time and been a mentor, an inspiration, and a resource of her knowledge to countless media professionals. She founded and heads the Native Media Resource Center, whose ambitious mission includes promoting racial harmony and cross-cultural understanding. Joining us now from Walla La, California, is Peggy Berryhill. She's the general manager of KGUA, where she is right now, and she is Muskogee. Peggy, welcome back to Native America Calling. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Oh, and Jay, and Jay, you almost made, made you almost got it to Gualala, almost. <laughs> Gualala. <laughs> Gualala. Okay. All righty. Gualala. Yes. That's very good. Thank you. Thank well, you for that uh, amazing introduction. And it's a pleasure to be talking with you, Sean. I'm enjoying hearing you as the host of the show. And, uh, you know, welcome you to Native Radio. Well, thank you, Peggy. I appreciate that warm welcome. And uh, you just wrapped up your show, like, literally as we were going to air, you just pivoted right over to our show. So I want to thank you for making the time. 
That's exactly what we did. We do a live show on Mondays uh, called KGA Writers, and we literally did that. Said thanks, folks. Uh, that's the end of today's show. I got to go to Albuquerque now. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, I sure do appreciate you making the time for us. And Peggy, we've got so much to talk about today. Let's start with your work in radio. I want to congratulate you again. Fifty years since you first went on the air on radio station KPFA in Berkeley. Tell us about the show you produced there, Living on Indian Time. Oh, my goodness. You know, it really came as a surprise to me to realize it's been 50 years. Um, there was a uh, show that n- nobody was doing at the time. The title was Native American Students Hour, and the kids from Berkeley said, why don't you do the show? And I don't know why. Uh, that was the only time, actually, I was the only time I tried to go to a college at Cal, and uh, they were doing, I think, like eight-week semesters. It was just insane. Uh, I was not uh, prepared for that. So anyway, I went to KPFA. Uh, I met the woman who was doing the show, but she was not Native, and she was mainly playing music. And I'll tell you this story, John. The first time I went on the air, I was terrified. And I kind of sounded like this. I was so scared. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, I found out very quickly, it occurred to me, because this was the 70s, what I could do with the show. You know, we could interview people, and KPFA had a studio that had uh, four reel-to-reel tape recorders, cassette machine, three turntables, ten mics, and um, a cart player. So that's ancient uh, material for people who had been in radio a long time. They know what I mean. But So we had the studio, and we could bring in people live. We could have music, and I learned uh, how to use the microphone and run around the community when there were meetings and record the meetings. I learned how to edit them, and I brought them to the radio station week after week. Oh, that's amazing. Reel-to-reels and the old turntables. and I mean, tell us more, Peggy, about what radio was like back then, because, you know, now there's all these people like, oh, radio, you know, it's kind of out of, it's kind of a dying medium and such, but... During that period, like the early 70s, I mean, FM was like in its prime. It was super cool. And just what was that like being part of that just iconic period of radio? You know, that's a that's a good question, Sean. Actually, um, well, there was the cool side because that was when FM and, you know, all these great music stations were coming on, KCN and then the Bay Area, KTIM, and just really cool stuff, lots of music. Stereo was new. Mm. But for the Indian community... FM radios were very expensive, and there weren't a lot of people that had FM radios, so people would go to other people's houses and sit around and listen to the show. Um, so it was a big transition, and KPFA, of course, is part of the Pacifica group, and they were highly alternative. So there were, um, I don't know, 70 shows a week, each about different communities. Uh, and so we did what, you know, well, I say we, it was me at first alone, but I, over the years that I was at KPFA, I had other people helping me do the show, like Ken Tiger or um, Michelle LaRock, uh, Richard Tuelk, a lot of people who would come in over the years and, and learn how to do stuff, and then, you know, but they didn't stick. They went on with their lives and did other things. So it was uh, really, as you say, the heyday of music, you know, on FM was amazing. 
And we got to play a lot of Native music that nobody had ever heard, you know? Mm. Well, you know, you mentioned the cassettes and, and the reel-to-reel, and was it challenging? Because nowadays, right, everything's digital. You just press a button. But in those days, I mean, did you have to work with those tapes and things like that to get everything just to sync it and, and play on air? You know, I did, and and I loved the challenge. I still love the challenge of live radio. I call it beat the clock. But um, sure, sometimes I would be editing an interview literally up to the last minute, and uh, you know, would throw it up on the on the um, in the big studio. There were these four reel to reel machines, and they were like taller than me, so I'd have to throw the seven inch reel or the ten inch reel on, and it turned out to be. Uh, I used to do live A-B roll mixes before, you know, so this really as a producer, it prepared me to be a producer because I would maybe start with music and fade down and bring up uh, maybe some ambience, bring up an interview, bring that down, come back to live, you know. So it, it was, I had, I loved it. I had three reel-to-reel machines to work with. I had the cart machines. I had, you know, uh, turntables. And then mm-hmm. I had the microphones, either somebody <laughs> live or they could call in. So I loved it. I just loved it, and I made use of all of it. And Peggy, did you have to cut the tape, like, with razor blades and things like that to get it to work? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we heard... did. We cut the tape with razor blades. And you put tape on it, and, you know, you got to learn how to do it right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about working with reel-to-reel that digital is so much more wonderful for is – you know, if you, when you were producing, whether it was a live radio or you're doing documentaries, you would end up with, I am not kidding, like quarter-inch pieces of tape that might be the end of a T or part of a K <laughs> or maybe a breath, and you know, because you might need it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have your, your, your reel-to-reel machine, uh, you know, all of these things taped down so you might uh, be able to grab them and use them somewhere. I can't even imagine what kind of challenge it was. So how long were you on the show? How long did uh, Living on Indian Time, did it air? Uh, I think we ran for five years, five years, and then I went to NPR. Wow. And I want to ask you all about NPR, but before we do, I I mean, other than the music, what were some of the key topics that you featured there on on Living on Indian Time? Oh, gosh. Um, We did so many shows. I mean, uh, one thing was fun. Uh, I remember doing my first live recording with Floyd Westerman, Charlie Hill. Uh, I don't know who was speaking, uh, but, you know, I would record those, bring those in, and edit them. Talk about uh, health conditions. Uh, Just today, you know, I'm a journalist, so talking about what the health was for the Native American community or educational uh, projects uh, that were going on. burial mounds. There was a lot of building going on in the Bay Area, and the Bay Area is Ohlone uh, country. And so there were a lot of Ohlone graves that were being, uh, you know, dug up so that they built these skyscrapers. So whatever the politics was at the moment, uh, we would have it on the air. Okay. And then you were right there. Storytelling. And then, of course, uh, the activism was just really hot at that time in the early 70s. So you were right there ground zero. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's also why, you know, it was so important to learn the craft, learn the skills of running around with a microphone. And 
I might add, Sean, cassette machines at that time, a portable cassette machine weighed about 25 pounds. Mm. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and you'd run around with your microphone and your portable cassette machine and go, you know, wherever it was, whether there was a protest or, um, the, you know, being, I'd already been a journalist. So, you know, I knew that we needed more to fill in uh, to get to be live, to get an interview, to have the sound that was going on there and uh, questions from or, or comments from Native people and non-Native people. So whatever the thing was, I would be there and gather all that tape and get it together for the show. Oh, Peggy, this is just amazing uh, to hear you share these stories. And again, just, you know, what radio was like 50 years ago. And uh, we do have to take a short break, but when we come back, I, I want to talk to you all about uh, what you did there at NPR and how you made that transition from, from working at College Radio to NPR. But before we do that, we do have to take a break. So stay with us. We'll be right back with more to talk about with Peggy Berryhill. You're listening to Native America Calling. This is a special encore show, so we aren't taking listener phone calls live on the air. Feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or by writing in at comments at NativeAmericaCalling.com. Memorial Day is the unofficial start of the summer tourism season. We'll check in with Native experts on how tribal tourism is changing. We'll also hear about an upcoming show that highlights strong Native women in media, arts, sports, and politics. That's coming up on the next Native America Calling. Wow. Oyataki Awamichalakilo, Chanisha Oichayo, Wian Wichon, Woi Hanke, Wokie, Yukelo, Isam Wasolea Chehanta, Leliao, go dot CMS dot gov slash Wian Wikigini Oapi El, Le Wot Hanaki, Medicare and Medicaid or Tieta Hiapelo. Oh, Hetchetuelo. This is Native America Calling. We're talking with Peggy Berryhill, a.k.a. the First Lady of Native Radio. We are celebrating her 50 years in the radio business today. Peggy, before break, you were, you're sharing uh, a little bit of background on what it was like working there at Berkeley at the, the station KPFA. And then you made this pivot to NPR. How did that position come about? Well, uh, you know that uh, I was uh, working. There was uh, Frank Blythe, whom you may know, uh, of uh, what was it called, the Native American Public Broadcasting Consortium, and Mike Smith, who's sadly gone now, but he ran the American Indian Film Festival. They put on a media, a Native media conference in San Francisco. 
So I went with my microphone, my 20-pound, 25-pound cassette machine, (laughs) and I was going to the sessions and recording the sessions, literally, you know, moving, going to a, a session. Maybe there was a panel and moving my mic, going to the next session. And there was a workshop on NPR, and I went up to, I didn't know what NPR was. I went to look at that workshop, but it was packed with people. So I didn't. I didn't go in. I just kept working. And about three weeks after the conference, I got a call from a woman named Janet Dewart, who was head of the Department of Specialized Audience Programs, meaning basically everybody but white men. So um, she said, I saw you working. I saw you working at that conference. I want to hire you to do something for us. Now, the department didn't have a lot of money. And believe it or not, Sean, they did two our radio documentaries back then that people would listen to. (laughs) And so she teamed me up with a reporter, the head of the L.A. News Bureau for NPR, and we went off to Montana and we did uh, a a two-hour documentary about um, oil and Mm -hmm. uh, and Northern Cheyenne. And uh, so we went there uh, together, recorded a bunch of interviews. They brought me back to uh, NPR and I got to see the studios. It was awesome, and I just knew that I would be back there someday. So we reproduced this two-hour documentary. I came home, and sure enough, shortly after that, Janet called me back, and she said, I've got, I found some money. I want to bring you out here. And they brought me in as a producer with a capital P, not an intern, not an assistant, but a producer. And um, that's, that's how I got there. Wow. And um, I, I mean, at this time, NPR was still relatively new as well, right? It, was, it hadn't been around that long. That's true. That's very true. Uh, there wasn't even uh, a morning edition, I think, was just starting. ATC was the main thing, and they were mainly doing also uh, broadcasting for uh, college stations. So there was a lot of classical music. Although at the same time, one of the most wonderful things, aside from this fabulous studios and great engineers and budget all you needed. We even had a librarian. You wanted research, you just go to Rob and say, hey, Rob, can you look this up for me? I need to know about mental health with Indians. Boom, Mm. I'd have the research. But um, they were also doing wonderful uh, radio theater, and that was fabulous. So, yeah, it was, I I loved it. And you Mm. could get into the White House in three minutes, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Not like today, that's for sure. Peggy, we got a caller already on the line. Teresa, who is listening in Vallejo, California on KPFA. She has a question for you. Hello, Teresa. Hi, Sean. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for calling. Hey, Peggy, I'd like you to share about how your work in community radio has contributed to the empowerment of indigenous community movements such as the 1973 Wounded Knee Occupation and the trial of Leonard Peltier. Peggy, feel free to respond. Sure, sure. Um, In 1976, I covered the first trial of of the first AIM trial of uh, some Indians who were on trial for the killing of the two FBI agents at Pine Ridge. Uh, Williams and Kohler were the FBI agents. And the people on trial were Dino Butler and Bob Robidoux. And this took place in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. 
and it was, I think, a six-week trial. And so I was there in uh, Cedar Rapids uh, with uh, one of my radio partners at that time, and I lived in um, a house with John Trudell and his then-wife um, and child, you know, and uh, some other people, and uh, there was a little AIM encampment. And we didn't know how Cedar Rapids, since it was Iowa, how they would uh, uh, ex accept us. But they just opened their arms, and this is a farm community. Every weekend you'd go out to some church out in the country, and it'd be these amazing meals and feasts, and mm. uh, John would give lectures everywhere, as did Tina. Tina Trudell was an amazing intellect as well. It's a, She's such a loss to the world. And, um, and of course, as their child is, because uh, anyway, that's another story. But So it was a, an amazing experience, and Sean, you're going to like this part of it. How you did reporting from the field then, and I would send stories to NPR and to MEGA-Z and KPFA and other stations, you would go to a phone booth, and you would unscrew the bottom of the phone booth, and you had alligator clips that were connected to the output of your cassette machine. So you would voice your tracks, then you would play the cassette sound bites uh, through the alligator clips, and then you'd you know, go back and read your tracks and then do your next you know, sound bites. And, that's, and you would do that for every station that you were reporting <laughs> to. And I, I forget, I think I was reporting for about 30 stations. Oh, my God. So you mean, okay, so I'm thinking of those old phones. You would unscrew the, where you spoke? Like you yeah. unscrewed that little piece, that, the, the mouthpiece that you spoke into? Is that how it worked? Mm -hmm. that and, and this is a phone booth. Clips. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! And then you had to put quarters in it the whole time too. I imagine. I yeah, probably. Pro <laughs> or I don't know how many people had toll-free numbers, but yeah, that's how it worked. Wow, wow! Now I imagine for those trials, there you were probably the only native media that was covering those stories. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think I, I know that there was like an artist from, um, I think, the New York Times. She was there, you know, doing uh, drawings, and, uh, geez, I, I don't really remember. There w was some media, but not a lot. And, of course, um, you know, William Kunstler was an amazing attorney mm -hmm. to watch, and he would just kind of run rings around the um, uh, the <laughs> federal, uh, you know, uh, prosecutor because they were very straight in little black suits and shine shoes, and Kunstler had this long white hair, and he was dramatic and so, you know, he, he was just so well-spoken, and it was so amazing. And here's the other things I learned. So they would fight like heck during the day, and as soon as court was over, they'd put on their shorts and go play tennis together. <laughs> <laughs> this is Kutzler and then the prosecutors? Those yes, guys and I can't tennis? remember his name either. Uh, they, there were two prosecutors, and they, yeah, Kutzler and M. Let's see, uh, Dick Gregory came to the trial once, Brando came to the trial. Uh, it was, you know, quite a, it was an important trial. Right. And uh, then we'd also hang out in the evening with uh, uh, Bob uh, uh, Robidoux and Dino Butler and, and their family because there was a small AIM encampment. And so it was, uh, and Chief uh, Fool's Crow was there as well, Frank Fool's Crow. Mm. So there would be ceremonies as well, which, you know, we would take part in. Wow. 
It was a fascinating time for sure, Peggy. Let's go uh, back to the phones. We have another caller, Shelly, who is listening in Oakland, California, listening online on KIBE. Hello, Shelly. You're on the air. No, it's not Shelly. It's Joey. I'm, I'm the one listening from KIBE online. Okay. I'm sorry about the, the name mispronunciation. Thank you for calling. That's in. not just a mis- mispronunciation. That's a complete gender switch, if you ask me. But that's okay. Um, it's it's live radio. I I'll complete, completely uh, for, forgive you, Sean. No no problems whatsoever. <laughs> okay, um, thank Peggy, you. I just wanted to say, uh, hey, young, hello. It's Joey Orozco. I I know that. Hey, Joey, good to hear your voice. I know you'd recon- Of course, you'd recognize my voice. Radio people know voices. You know, like the backs of their hands. Um, I just wanted to congratulate you on your tenure, 50-plus years in, in, in Native Radio, your focus, your dedication. Uh, and, and I wanted to offer uh, this, 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 this nomenclature for you. Um, I know a lot of people refer to you as the First Lady of Native Radio. However, First Lady has the connotation kind of like the president's wife. I refer to you as the grandmother of Native Radio, and I hope that – is, is is reflected nicely in, in in your mind as as a as a tone of respect. I, I appreciate that. I think Auntie would be. I'd like Auntie better, um, but I appreciate that. And and it uh, came as a surprise to me a few weeks ago when I realized I had been doing this fifty years. Um, uh, you know, so I, I appreciate that. And what what I love uh, about uh, people like yourself, Joy, is that you are embracing the latest technology and using it, you know, to tell our histories. Joy did a, a film about some of us in Native Radio. And, uh, and of course, his dad was the manager of KIDE, and uh, Joe and I have known each other for decades. But uh, I just think it's fabulous that you are continuing on with storytelling but embracing new technology. Well, Joey, thank you for calling in. Really appreciate that. Um, grandmother Peggy. I like Auntie Peggy, too, Peggy. It just thank has a good you. ring to it, for sure. <laughs> but you know what? Um, before we go much further, I, I do want to um, let our listeners uh, get a chance to, to listen to some of your work. And we're going to go ahead and take a listen right now. We have a short excerpt from the 1992 documentary that you produced in collaboration with Smithsonian. It's called Spirits of the Present. And in this clip, you're talking about how Native Americans are perceived overseas, particularly in Germany. Popular novels, television, and films, mainly exported from the United States, all depict Indians as having disappeared at the turn of the century. American and European history books have done little to share contemporary Indian history. This puts Indians into a strange netherworld of past-life glory and sort of noble forest folk frozen in time. While in England as a guest lecturer at Schumacher College, Muskogee scholar Victoria Bomberry found that Indians are seen as spiritual healers. I think probably the main image that people see is someone who is um, sort of a guru. A new image of Indians has sprung up around the non-indigenous world over the past decade. Indians as healers of the earth, In England, Bomberry found that many people treated her as a medicine person instead of a scholar. People did expect us to have the answer, as if there is an answer in the world to the problems that there are. And 
they could be, you know, they could be anything from, you know, what, what kind of ritual can we perform in order to make things right? Or how can we do something to either heal the earth or heal an, an individual emotional problem? While this new image of Indians is positive, it's still not seeing Indians as who they are. Today in Europe and the United States, Native people are seen as sort of a mascot for the earth. This documentary is more than 30 years old. It includes familiar voices, Tantu Cardinal, Suzanne Harjo, Buffy St. Marie, and your voice as well, Peggy. And it covers issues such as mascots, religious freedoms, representation, um, ideas that are often referred to nowadays as poverty porn. And Peggy, when you reflect back on this work, are, are you happy with the progress that we've made as Native people during the last few decades? Boy, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, you know, uh, and thank you for playing that uh, and, and hearing the voice of Victoria Bomberry, who's a, another great journalist. But, um, you know, I think the problem is, uh, except for the contemporary science sci-fi movies that are coming out with us as the stars, you know, killing off aliens, um, <laughs> I think we're still stuck in that past. I think people still have a hard time separating us from the George Catlin paintings and uh, from Wounded Knee as only activists. Um, they're still not seeing Native people as a whole, you know, where our community is full of educators and scholars and doctors and attorneys and, and everyday people. And, and I think, you know, people do still either see us in that role as living in the past or we're somehow these great uh, spiritual beings that they come to us and, you know, Auntie, Auntie, what can you tell me, you know? <laughs> Auntie, uh, is there a ceremony? So I, I just they just don't see us as just regular right. old people. Right. Well, Peggy, what do you see as the most pressing issues facing Native people today? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I should have known you'd ask me something like that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, <laughs> well, obviously, I think uh, health is still a big issue for Native mm -hmm. people. Uh, I think being able to go, we have more people in schools educating. I mean, my own great niece is getting her doctorate at Davis. Her name is Haley Rains. So, you know, I think education uh, is still remains an important thing for Indians to be uh, fulfilling all kinds of uh, occupations and scholarship. Again, our health issues, uh, diabetes is still a major issue. Um, of course, as you're saying, the poverty porn issues, those are still there. But just being able to be seen as who we are and again, uh, I do think that with con the technology we have today, more younger people like yourselves are doing more. But who sees those? You know, who hears the podcast? Who sees these wonderful short films that are being produced? I don't know. And and I and it just people just can't take us out of the past. I don't get it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And you're right. I mean, there's. All these mediums out there, media out there, there's all these formats. But, yeah, you always kind of wonder who is actually listening or watching or, or, or you know, really dialed into to some of this content because there's just so much of it out there. It's just kind of hard to keep track and such. And 
Peggy, we've got a lot of callers on, on the show today, and I'm going to go ahead and just wait until this next break, and we'll bring in some more calls. But we've got people calling in from Gallup, New Mexico, Albuquerque. Also, we've got somebody who wants to talk to you from Warm Springs, Oregon. So we're going to go ahead and take another break, and then we'll, we'll get back to some of these calls. And Peggy, I also want to talk to you a little bit about you know um, your heritage, and I know uh, you moved out to California at a very young age, as, as, I, as if I'm not mistaken, like is a, is a very young child. So I want to get into some of those details as well. But before we do that, we are speaking with Peggy Berry Hill, aka Auntie Peggy Berry Hill, aka First uh, First Lady of Native Radio. Uh, so many monikers, so many cool nicknames, but they all spell awesomeness, and that is the legend of. Peggy Berry Hill. So folks, again, stay with us. We just got to take a short break and we're going to be right back at this. You're listening to Native America Calling. This is a special encore show, so we aren't taking listener phone calls live on the air. Feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or by writing in at comments at nativeamericacalling.com. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. Lowrider enthusiasts can see some of the baddest cars, trucks, motorcycles, bikes, and everything on wheels, plus live music, all at the Artemis Lowrider Super Show, taking place in downtown Albuquerque at the Albuquerque Convention Center Sunday, June 4th. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. We're glad you could join us today on Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and today we're joined with Native radio veteran Peggy Berryhill. She signed on to her first radio show 50 years ago and is still at it. And let's go to the phones right now because we've got a lot of callers lined up. First up is Strider, who is listening in Gallup, New Mexico on KGLP. Hello, Strider. Uh, hello. Uh, yeah, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have a huge amount of respect for uh, KPFA and the fact that they started in the uh, late 1940s and also that they were uh, direct technical support for Radio Free Alcatraz uh, during the occupation from uh, Thanksgiving of 1969 uh, up until 1971, a very uh, honorable uh, support there. So thank you very much for your work, Peggy. Well, Strider, thank you for uh, giving a shout out to Peggy. And I'm going to go ahead and just take another call now to get through some of these callers. Next, we have Rosemary, who is listening in Albuquerque on station KUNM. Hi, Rosemary. Hi. Uh, I want to uh, emphasize what Strider just said because I was going to um, tell the listening audience that KPFA was the first public radio station in the world. As such, Peggy is some kind of a world leader in um, broadcasting for the whole world. And I really appreciate your show. It's a great show. Thanks. Thank you, Rosemary. Appreciate it. And uh, Peggy, I do want to get, give you a chance to respond. We had Strider and both Rosemary uh, talking about uh, first public radio station in the world, KPFA. And, of course, you as a world leader. Please feel free to, re to respond to those folks. <laughs> Uh, wow. Well, thank you so much uh, for uh, Strider and, and Rosemary. Uh, you know, I, 
I've never thought of uh, it that way. I mean, I just I just work. That's all I do, and I'm glad to know that my work has has meant so much to people. Uh, KPFA was uh, the first non-commercial radio. It went on the air in 1949. And here's another great radio story for you, Charles. FM was so brand new in 1949, most people didn't have FM radios. So the Pacifica Foundation, KGUA, I mean KPFA, uh, they had a little box. It was a, a wooden box, and they had a little dial on it, but the dial only with a with a knob, and it only went to one frequency uh, to KPFA 94.1, and they sold it. It was called a subscriber. And they sold it for $15, and that's how people began to listen to KPFA uh, in 1949. And then in the 70s, and it used to be a very um, highly intellectual, nothing wrong with that kind of station, and maybe classical music. But in the 70s, when it was the big, you know, uh, power movements, all of that, um, then a lot of us came into KPFA and began doing radio shows. And uh, we thank the Pacifica Foundation for all of that and uh, very, very happy to be part of that. Mm. $15 in 1949, that was probably a, a pretty penny, too, for that type of device. And Peggy, let's talk a little bit about your family. I know you were born in the capital of the Muscogee Nation. How old were you exactly when your family moved to the West Coast? Uh, I actually turned five on the train. Uh, mm. Relocation brought us here. My parents had um, their own dry cleaning business in, I think it was Morris. And uh, when, and Creek Nation then was struggling. And it didn't, you know, now it's, it's doing great. But um, at that point, my parents decided, well, the BIA promised them, right, that they would set them up in a dry cleaning business as soon as we got to California. And so we uh, came for relocation and uh, took the train into California, and I turned five on the train, and they, they uh, dropped us off in a housing project, and that was it. So was there that additional support to help your family get that? Uh, dry cleaning business up and going? Nope, nope. No. Uh, we had a lot of <laughs> a lot of sociologists come and study us, uh, <laughs> but no, not not really. We lived in, uh, like I said, at first in a housing project. Well, here's kind of an interesting thing: the housing project doesn't exist anymore. And uh, I, I always you, you talk about the questions that that white people ask you. So I was like six years old or something, seven, being enrolled in school there. And the woman at the desk was saying, well, aren't all you Indians from Oklahoma rich? Don't you all get checks from the government? Oh, jeez. And I'm in a housing project. Why would we be living in a housing project? <laughs> Leftover <laughs> World War II barracks. Um, so anyway, that, uh, you know, that was always the same. So then, no, my parents, my mom got a job at a dry cleaner's. Now, I, I can't give you the mileage, but the dry cleaner's was in Alameda, the where we lived in the housing project was uh, at least at least four miles away, and she walked to and from work every day. And my dad got a job at Crown Zellerbach, um, and that was it. Okay. 
Well, it's crazy. I mean, here they were thinking you folks had all this money for, and it's like times don't change because now people think, oh, well, you know, you must have a casino and you must get like a huge fur cap. And I hear questions like that all the time. Like, no, not every Native American person gets a, a giant per cap check every, every month or every quarter like that. So, wow, Peggy, this is just so fascinating. And let's go ahead now and go back to the phones where we have Mary who is listening in Warm Springs, Oregon on KWSO. Hi, Mary. Hey, good morning. Hey, Sister Peggy, I just had to call and chime in on all of the knowledge and experiences and people that you've incorporated into radio, and I'm fortunate to be one of those people. We've done so many great uh, projects together, and I just appreciate um, all that you add to radio and the people that you've incorporated into it, and it's just great to hear you on the radio. Mary, thank you for calling in. Peggy, feel free to respond to Mary up in Warm Springs. Oh, I, you know, Mary is just one of my dearest, dearest friends I've met through all the trainings we've done. She does a great, did great radio work. She has a great voice, and she just is the sweetest, hardest person you could ever meet. And her husband, Mike, is an amazing beater, um, the beater. <laughs> so a lot of the men at Warm Spring do the beating, and they're just awesome. Thank you, Mary. You bet. Uh, we got a couple more callers, but Peggy, before we take those, I, I do want to ask you um, about uh, Peggy's place. And, and you've been doing this show now for more than a dozen years. And uh, tell us more about it. What, what kind of topics do you feature? Well, when, when we built the radio station, I had to have a place to play. So I just decided to take the 9 o'clock hour, Monday through Friday, and just talk to people. And especially for the community, community radio, I mean, I believe in this. So I would just, you know, grab people off the street at the store or uh, local people. And just my theme is Peggy's Place is where we all get to know each other. And so over these 13 years, I, I, I can't remember the math, but it's something like 5,000 people I've uh, talked to on a daily basis a weekly basis, and it's been great for the community, and now I have regulars that come on each month, but we talk about health, uh, we talk about uh, citizen science in our community, we have this great show that, that we did before I went on the air called KGUA Writers, um, that's an awesome show that we started during COVID, I mean, what, whatever it is, uh, or just, just Bring in somebody who works at the grocery store. Come in and talk to us and tell mm -hmm. us your story. And that's what uh, Peggy's Place is all about. I love that because some of those folks, like you mentioned at the grocery store, they've got some of the best stories to share. So I really appreciate that you're bringing all kinds of Native voices into these conversations. And, you know, Peggy, you've developed other radio stations as well. So when did you make that leap into to actually creating and, and building radio stations for tribes? Well, let me make a correction. I didn't, other than this station, I haven't built any, but uh, it was while I was at NPR, I got a call from day, one day from this gravelly voice, say, and it was Susan Brain, who many people know, another icon, and she built uh, about six stations, but she says, hey, I'm down here in Zuni, and we want you to come down here and train us. So I arrived in Zuni, uh, and the funniest thing, I think it was Faye Aracho, I get off the plane, and they all stop, the staff, and looks at me and saw I was Indian. And the first thing I think it was Faye out of her lips was, wow, 
no wonder you do such such good shows. We always wondered who that white woman at NPR was who did such great <laughs> Indian shows. And then they realized I was an Indian. So that, that sort of began an era where I, I did a lot of training. I think I've been to, I don't know how many stations. I just loved it. But when Native Radio was really starting to expand, because when I started, there were three stations. By the time I was at NPR, there were maybe seven. Now we have 68 which I'm so thrilled about, and we need more. So I just, I, I don't know, I went to Zuni, I went to um, KNNB uh, just up the road, uh, I've been to North Dakota, South Dakota, Washington, Oregon, um, New Mexico, uh, most of the, the states. I, I've been to a lot of the native stations, and it, my training had much more to do with being on the air. How do you talk into the microphone? Uh, teaching people how to edit tape, um, what you know, what you just what it means to have a station, and mm -hmm. what you can do for your community. So it was more like that, uh, being a producer and producing. Wow. Well, Peggy, you mentioned when you guys started, there were three native stations. Today, there are sixty-eight. So I just want to personally thank you and others uh, who worked alongside you, because if it wasn't for you folks laying all the groundwork and, and helping to get all these stations going, a show like uh, Native America Calling, we would never have the audience that we enjoy. So thank you. Thank you and the others who've uh, worked so hard as well. And uh, let's go ahead. We, let's go back to the phones because i got a couple of callers that I really want to get to before we wrap up. First up is Norman listening in Gallup, New Mexico, again on station KGLP. Hi, Norman. Hey, thank you, thank you. I'd like to say thank you to Peggy, and I'm from that 70 generation that grew up on the Navajo Nation, and we'd be wondering when they'd be talking about the struggle of the indigenous rights back then, and you always came on, and it inspired us, and I'm a screenwriter, and I've always looked up to you, and thank you for your uh, your life and promoting and supporting indigenous filmmakers also, so Dear sister, thank you for all your work, a lot of sacrifices you gave, and you can look back, stand before your ancestors one day, and you say, I did the best we could, and many of us will continue your work. Thank you. Thank you, Norman. And, and Peggy, I'm just going to go ahead and do our next caller uh, right away, just in the interest of time. Keevan, who is listening online down in San Diego, California. Hello, Keevan. Hey, this is nephew Keevan. <laughs> <laughs> um, Peggy, tell us a little bit. I'm interested in knowing a little bit about the radio theater and uh, uh, reminisce a little bit about uh, the NMAI experience with Living Voices and live radio at the uh, powwows with Frank Blythe. Oh, my goodness. And this is my good buddy, Kevin Lewis. Um, Kevin. And thank you for asking. Well, you know, oh, my God, all of the, I don't even know where to start. Give me another, uh, throw <laughs> me another hint, prompt here. Um, you know, we did, I mean, live radio is just fabulous. There's, you know, and what goes out goes out. You can't stop it once once it's gone. But working uh, particularly with the grand opening of the National uh, uh, Museum of the American Indian, uh, I d brought a crew there of, of uh, Native radio people along with uh, Greg McVicker, and uh, I think Mary was there. Kevin obviously was part of uh, the project, but and we called it the opening moment. And I think we did, uh, did we do six one-hours, Kevin? 
I can't remember, I but it was so. such. It was an amazing time when a Grand Entry was like forty thousand people. I'm not kidding, and it was so hot. Uh, and uh, just talking to everybody and all the events that were going on, the momentum, Rick West, um, the president of, wasn't it, Columbia was there. I mean, it was a most amazing time, and you saw Indians all over the subways and in all of the stores everywhere in D.C. It was such uh, an uh, awesome time to be there and to solidify the importance of Native history and putting our museum right there on the mall, it was just a fabulous thing. Uh, the other Living Voices, uh, that was another series, I think, that Keevan and I produced. And I think those were short pieces, Keevan. I, I can't correct, remember. Correct. So, uh, you, you know, I mean, there's just so many projects I've just had the pleasure of being able to be a part of to save uh, you know, our Native history are the moments that me are important to us and to train so many people. Uh, you know, I when I started, I thought there should be armies of Peggy Berry Hills out there. And I found, unfortunately, not everyone is uh, crazy like me. But uh, <laughs> over the years, we've trained a lot of people. And Keevan was a large part of that when he was at NMAI. And I just love Keevan and uh, went to his wedding recently. But we didn't record that. <laughs> All righty. Well, that's nephew Keevan calling in from San Diego. And of course, we had Norman up in Gallup, New Mexico as well. And Peggy, we're going to have to wrap up here in about another minute. But I just want to ask you here, you know, just looking ahead, how do you envision the future of Native Radio going forward? Well, I think it's going to grow. I don't, you know, but when I'm using the term radio, I don't know how many more stations will be built. It costs a lot of money. Uh, you have to have staff. I mean, it's it's a lot to keep a station on the air. But I think in the digital age, and we're seeing a lot of that um, with the podcasting, with uh, the films we're seeing that can be done at home. I think we're going to see a more more of that. But the the problem is is that you know making sure that they have audience, and of course we have um, the First Nation channel as well. Uh, and I again, but that's a cable company, and I don't cable channel. I don't know how many people see it, but I think the importance just doesn't leave the importance of us being our own uh, storytellers, our journalists, our scientists, all of that. What you're doing, Sean. Oh, and by the way, your friend Monica Brain was at my house last week and tonight. <laughs> all right. So awesome, I awesome. she got you in. <laughs> So, you know, don't, don't you, okay. you know, Sean, I mean, people are younger, the tools are better, they're lighter, they're faster. Uh, I don't exactly know where it's going to go, but I just think it's going to proliferate. Okay. And Peggy, I'm sorry, we're going to have to wrap it up. But again, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations. Folks, we're back again tomorrow with another great show. Hope you'll join us. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an educator day, a student day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA awards ceremony. 
Early bird registration ends July 18th at NIEA.org who support this show. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.